If your goal is to get more athletic, then you need to train like an athlete. If your goal is to be a bodybuilder, then you can train like a bodybuilder. But if your goal is to be more athletic, you can't train like a bodybuilder. Yeah, straight A student, but I'm friends with a cool kids. Following the rules and the rubric. Welcome to the GT Performance Podcast, where we have a conversation about long-term athlete development so you can help your athlete get faster, stronger, healthier, and prepared for real-world success. My name is Dr. Zach Geyser, and I am a sports performance coach, physical therapist, girl dad, and nerd about all things athletics. Today, we're going to build on our conversation about strength. So this is essentially part two of how to program strength training for your athlete. And we're going to talk about the death of the bro split, why you need to not train like a bodybuilder, and how you should program instead. So let's get this conversation started. I've always grown up around the weight room. My dad was a meathead, and I view meathead as a complimentary term. It's a term of endearment. It's not something derogatory. Um, And I shouldn't say was. He still is a certified meathead. To this day, he's still able to deadlift over 500 pounds. So I'd grown up around the weight room. We would go to the YMCA a lot. Um, But as I was growing up, obviously, I wouldn't be in the weight room lifting. I would do what most kids do. I would go to the basketball court and get some shots up while he was getting a lift in. But when I was going into sixth grade, I got curious about the weight room myself. And so um, we started lifting some weights around the house. I learned the fundamentals of how to bench press and I got addicted. I was bit by the weightlifting bug. I became addicted to the pump, the feeling of all the blood flow rushing to your muscles. You feel big, you feel strong, you feel tired, you feel accomplished. I had turned into a meathead. My dad had a copy of Arnold Schwarzenegger's Modern Encyclopedia of Bodybuilding floating around our house, so naturally I picked it up, I read it voraciously, and I treated it like my gym bro Bible. I used it to build my own training programs throughout middle school and high school, and it definitely definitely worked. I got bigger, I got stronger, I added a bunch of muscle mass, but I also had frequent recurring hamstring strains. I had to have sports hernia surgery as soon as I got to campus on college. I got bigger, I got stronger, but I also got slower. During my freshman track season, I started the year with an 11-3 meter dash. By the end of the year, I was running a 12-1. I put on a ton of weight, but I got really slow. One of the best things that ever happened to me, now I got faster before my sophomore year rolled around, but I lost a ton of weight before my junior year started because I got the flu, and that's when all my speed really came back. Fortunately for me, we had really good strength and conditioning coaches at the Division One level. And I quickly learned we didn't have chest and tries day. We didn't have back and buys day. We didn't follow bro splits. They programmed movement patterns. We know that getting stronger is massively important to becoming a better athlete. But not all strength is created equal. Not all training is the same. If your goal is to get more athletic, then you need to train like an athlete. If your goal was to be a bodybuilder, then you can train like a bodybuilder. But if your goal was to be more athletic, you can't train like a bodybuilder. So what do I mean train like a bodybuilder? What I'm really talking about there is the bro split. And this is what you hear anytime you go to a gym. You talk about chest and tries. That's a bro split. Talk about back and buys. Talk about just leg day. Like That is all combination of what we in the strength and conditioning community refer to as the bro split. It's where you're prioritizing muscle isolation, you're prioritizing muscle group selection over movement patterns. 
Now, movement is the foundation of everything we do. So if you want to get more athletic, we need to prioritize training movement patterns, not muscle groups. When you prioritize training movement patterns, you're going to hit all the muscles that you need to target. The reverse isn't true, though. When you prioritize muscle groups, you're not going to hit all the movement patterns that you need to train. Our major movement patterns that we need to hit are hinges, squats, presses, and rows. Now, we're going to have muscle and tissue isolation exercises as well, but those serve more as like a prehab, rehab, accessory type of deal. Our major movement patterns are our hinges, our squats, our presses, and our rows. How the bro split and bodybuilding culture really came to be dominant within the weightlifting community in America is really, really interesting. Um, it's really in large part due to Arnold Schwarzenegger and his rise within the United States um, as a celebrity. Dr. Andy Galpin, who's a really well-known exercise physiologist, has a podcast um, from around 2018, I want to say, um, called The Body of Knowledge. And one of his episodes really dives deep into the evolution of the fitness industry and how we got to this point today. And it's really interesting. So I highly recommend listening to that. If you want a way to find it, just shoot me an email and I'll send that over to you. But we need to recognize that what works for your cousin Vinny, who just wants to look jacked in a tank top, isn't going to be optimal for developing your athlete into a high level performer. So let's dive into what those major movement patterns actually are. Our two lower body compound movements are going to be our squats and our hinges. A compound movement refers to an exercise that has multiple joints moving at once. Whereas if you just have a single joint moving at once, we refer to those as an isolation exercise. So like a leg extension, you have just your knee moving. Whereas if you do a squat, you have your knee, your hip, and your ankle moving at the same time. Our two upper body compound movements are going to be our presses and our rows. So squats and presses both target what we call the anterior portion of the body, which is going to be the front side. So anterior means front. Our hinges and our rows are going to target our posterior side of our body. Those are going to be backside. So our anterior means front side, posterior means backside. So let's start by going over hinges. A hinge is a lower body compound movement characterized by having more hip bend than knee bend. So we consider that to be eccentric hip flexion. So as they're lowering down, they're bending more at the hips, which is essentially them bending over at the waist, more than they're bending the knee. Hinges primarily target the posterior chain. So they target the backside. They target your hip extensors. So those are going to be your glutes and your hamstrings. So hinges are going to be primarily targeting your glutes and your hamstrings. So some examples of hinges are RDLs. That's probably the most pure hinge example we can give you. Uh, deadlifts, trap bar deadlifts, single leg RDLs, hip thrusts, Nordic hamstring curls, uh, cleans, and a bunch of other stuff are examples of hinge movements. The hinge pattern is massively important to athletic performance. And so we talk about hip extension. If you want to put force back into the ground whenever you're accelerating out, that is largely hip extension. Um, you're going to have knee extension, obviously, important there as well. Um, but yeah, so hinging is massively important there. Um, if you want to jump really high, a vertical jump is uh, very reminiscent of a hinge pattern whenever you do a standing vert. Uh, depending on each person, some might get more squat dominant, some might more get more hinge dominant, but we see a little bit more hinging than we do squatting. 
If you talk about rotational sports like golf and baseball, you really need a, a smooth hinge pattern, a smooth hip hinge stance uh, to be able to get in and out of a hinge to have efficient power generation. There's a lot of hinge involvement with um, the torque generation. Um, and if you just even look at the position that a, a lockdown corner gets into or a really good basketball defender gets into whenever they're playing defense, the, the true athletic position is uh, a lot more hingy than it is squatty. So we really need to make sure that we're competent at hinging. So hinges are juxtaposed, as I alluded to, by squats. A squat is a lower body compound movement that's characterized by having more knee bend than hip bend. So you have more eccentric hip I'm sorry, more eccentric knee flexion than you have hip flexion. So that knee bends more as you lower than the hip does. So squats are going to target the anterior chain knee extensors. So they target the front side of the body. And so it's largely going to be quadriceps involvement. Um, some examples of squats are split squats, back squats, front squats, reverse lunges, step ups, things of that nature. And we're much more familiar with squatting patterns than we are with hinging patterns. So where does a squatting pattern really come into play? Where we see it the most is actually not what you might initially think of. It's not whenever a defender's in the stance or in a, a two-foot position. It's more often on one leg. Now, this is actually probably true for hinge patterns as well. They can be both unilateral, meaning one leg, or bilateral, meaning two leg. Um, but if you think about your squatting patterns, we see it most commonly when an athlete is going to sprint and change direction. So when you go to change direction, if you're sprinting and you go to stop yourself, you're going to have that knee bend a ton. You are stopping yourself as that knee continues to bend. We call that eccentric knee flexion, which is exactly what happens during our squatting patterns. So we need to get really good at that. When you go to project outwards, you're going to go through what we call concentric knee extension where that knee starts to straighten out so whenever you go to stop yourself it's like the lowering portion of a split squat it's the same position you get into whenever you get to the bottom of a split squat whenever you go to push back out it's like the rising portion of a split squat where that knee starts to straighten out again there's a big argument within the strength and conditioning community that seems perpetual. It seems to be never-ending whether bilateral squats or unilateral squats are better for athletic development. In reality, it's a false dichotomy. It doesn't have to be an either-or, and we will program both for our athletes. There's a lot of contextual factors that come into play. But to be honest, if I had to truly choose between a bilateral squat and a unilateral squat, I'm choosing the unilateral squat just about every day of the week. It just does a better job of replicating the positions your athlete actually gets into on game day. And that's the overall objective. We're not looking to develop bodybuilders. We're not looking to develop power lifters. We're looking to develop athletes who have athletic qualities and have high levels of athletic performance, which means we need to replicate the positions and the movements that they're actually going to get in whenever game day comes around. All right, so we know what a squat is. We know what a hinge is. But we need to talk about the hinge to squat continuum because in our world, we don't merely operate with black and white. We have gray area, and that's what the continuum is. Movements aren't always purely squats or purely hinges. There's typically some element of both within a movement. The same goes for the exercises that we select. We have more hip dominant, which are going to be true hinges, and we have more knee dominant, which are going to be true squats. And we can think about those as a continuum. So on the far left side, we have our hinges. The most pure hinge that we have is probably an RDL. Then we go a little bit over, we have a barbell deadlift, which is still pretty hingy. Then in the middle area, we have a trap bar deadlift, which has a lot of hip movement, but it also has a lot of knee movement as well. 
And then we go a little bit further over, we have a barbell back squat. We're now considered to be doing a squat, but it has a lot of hip movement as well. And then on the far right side, we have something like a front squat where your chest is gonna be pretty vertical, which means you don't have a ton of hip bend, but you do have a lot of knee bend. We can utilize this continuum to be able to choose exercises that are gonna be more appropriate for whatever we're trying to target. So if we have somebody who has some knee issues, but we still wanna train lower body stuff, then we can do things more on the hinge side of the continuum. The more hip bend compared to knee bend that we have, the more likely it is to be something that's not provocative for them. So we can just make uh, informed decisions based off of the different characteristics of each point along the continuum. All right, let's move to the upper body. So we're going to pop it off with presses. A press is an upper body compound movement characterized by concentric shoulder flexion and elbow extension. So that's fancy words, but I think we all know what a bench press looks like. This is something where you have something that's on your chest, push it away from you, then you slowly lower and control it back, and then push it away from you again. The muscles that we're going to target there are going to be your pecs, triceps, and your anterior delts. So where does this come into play with athletic development? It is less important than you might think. Now, I'm not saying it's unimportant, but bench press has such a staple within weight rooms across the country. So much so that it's the only strength exercise done at the NFL Combine. But in reality, it has less overall impact on game day performance than most of the other actual movement patterns. So it definitely does come into play, though. Probably the most pure example of a pressing pattern is when an offensive lineman is pass blocking in football, but it's also used to develop other qualities like throwing where you need forceful elbow extension. So um, getting a bigger press can have some degree of impact on throwing velocity. Um, Just to wind back a bit, some examples of pressing patterns, um, the one everybody knows is a bench press, but you also have landmine presses, incline presses, push-ups, and some more exercises similar to that. Presses are juxtaposed with rows. So whereas presses hit the front side of the body, rows hit the back side of the body. So a row is an upper body compound movement characterized by concentric shoulder extension and elbow flexion. It targets the rhomboids, the traps, the posterior delts, the lats, and the biceps. Now, examples of rows can be bent over rows, inverted rows, chin-ups, lat pull-downs, cable mid-rows, band pull-aparts. Rowing is extremely prevalent in combat sports where grabbing and manipulating an opponent is needed, um, but it's also really, really useful for developing power and swinging movements such as throwing or spiking because that is where your arm comes down rapidly, so your shoulder extends rapidly, and that is what we need to generate a lot of force in those skills. So with those four major movement patterns, your hinges, your squats, your presses, and your rows, you're taking care of probably 80 to 90% of what you need to take care of. You're getting the biggest bang for your buck with those four major movement patterns, and those are generally universal. Now we'll choose different exercises within those movement patterns, depending on the athlete's needs, their sport, all of that fun stuff, Um, but those patterns are relatively universal. But that's not the only things that we're going to include. We still want to have some isolation exercises in there. Isolating structures can be a really useful way to uh, prehab, rehab, um, make an athlete a little bit more robust, but it can also be uh, helpful for enhancing performance and taking care of the little nuance stuff that needs a little extra TLC. 
Some commonly isolated structures include your core, which we'll do in a variety of ways. Most commonly, we'll do anti-extension exercises like planks. We'll do anti-lateral flexion exercises like side planks or da Vinci holds. We'll do anti-rotation exercises like pal-off presses and chops, things of that nature. Uh, we'll do rotator cuff exercises. So if you're a throwing athlete, we need to make sure we have our arm care in there. Um, we're making sure the rotator cuff is not only strong, but also has um, appropriate endurance and timing as well. If you're a jumping athlete, you're maybe a little bit more prone to patellar tendinopathy. We need to make sure you have uh, very strong quadriceps that um, you're able to handle the frequent jumping loads that you're going to undergo, that that tendon is nice and robust. Uh, we'll do a lot of um, calf and Achilles isolation to make sure we add some stiffness, some good stiffness um, to that complex to help our athletes get a little bit springier and hopefully reduce the amount of Achilles tendinopathies that we see. We'll also isolate the intrinsic foot muscles. Uh, your foot is the contact point with the ground. So that is where your body transmits all its force into the ground. And so we need to make sure we have a nice, strong foot to be able to have a smooth interface there. Uh, we'll do biceps exercises because who doesn't want to get a little bit yoked? But more importantly, we need to make sure for our throwing athletes that the biceps are nice and strong to be able to help decelerate the arm. Uh, we'll do neck exercises to hopefully reduce concussion risk, um, especially for our uh, combat sport athletes, football players, um, soccer players who can do a lot of heading. Um, the possibilities are really endless. Uh, we just want to look at what that athlete's history is, what their sport is, where their current status is, and where we need to get them to and fill in the gaps with interventions that make sense. All right, so we went over a lot of information, but I want to make sure that it's actionable and you know what you need to take away from this. So step one is to stop focusing on body parts and bro splits. So we want to train like an athlete if we want to get more athletic. Step two is choose how many days per week you're going to train. So I would recommend either two or three days per week uh, for most athletes. So let's say you choose three days a week. You want to have a day of rest or a day off of weightlifting between those sessions. Step three is going to be programming one exercise from each of the major movement patterns each day that you strength train. So choose one hinge, choose one squat, choose one press, choose one row. To be time efficient, I would pair your squats with your rows and your hinge with your press. It doesn't have to be exactly like that, but you have an upper body movement paired with a lower body movement so you don't have unnecessary fatigue and you can be time efficient. Step four is going to be to choose isolation exercises to address weaknesses. So if you're a football player, make sure you have neck in there. If you're a baseball player, a softball player, a volleyball player, make sure you have some rotator cuffs, some arm care exercises in there. If you're a basketball player, make sure you have some sort of quadriceps isolation exercises uh, so you have good patellar tendon health. Make sure you have some ankle exercises to do, reduce your risk of ankle injuries. Make sure you're aware of what your strengths and weaknesses are, what your demands of your sport are, and program accordingly. Step five is going to be to identify where you lie on the strength levels we discussed in the previous episode and choose a set rep scheme that's appropriate for your strength level. 
If you're level one, you're focusing on technique. If you're level two, we need higher rep schemes. So that way we're progressing in reps, not necessarily progressing in load. So something like an APRE 10, a build 8, 10, 12, something we're progressing in reps until we learn how to strain. If you're level three, start with high sets and reps with lower weights and then progress down to higher weights with lower sets and reps. Step number six might be the most important step. Execute the program with elite consistency and intensity. The most beautifully written program in the world will not do you an ounce of good if you don't work your freaking tail off every single time you go in the weight room. It won't do you an ounce of good if you don't show up to the weight room every time you're supposed to show up to the weight room. So work really hard, show up when you're supposed to show up, and do things that are strategically designed for you. Results will come. All right, so that ends our conversation for today. If you feel like you got some value from this episode, if you could please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast, that would be much appreciated. If you have any questions or if there's anything I can help you out with, don't hesitate to shoot me an email at zach at gtperformance.co. Go be greater than. Yeah, straight A student, but I'm friends with the cool kids. Following the rules and the rubric. Freestyle on the bus and it's too lit. 